Hello and welcome to the Rivertown Story Corps, a podcast about the people making a difference in the Rivertown communities of Westchester, New York. I'm your host, Timothy Reuter. Today, we are pleased to have with us Rabbi Daniel Reeser, the incoming successor rabbi of Temple Beth Shalom in Hastings-on-Hudson. Rabbi Daniel, welcome to the show. Thanks, Timothy. So glad to be with you. You wrote your rabbinical thesis on Art Green. What did you learn from him and what, if anything, of that do you apply to being a rabbi? Such a great question. So Art Green is a really interesting figure. He um, really revolutionized American Jewish life in the second half of the 20th century. He's part of the movement that's sort of known as Jewish renewal, where um, they apply uh, the principles of, 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 of Jewish tradition, specifically of Hasidism and of the mystic tradition, the Zohar, the Kabbalah, um, to sort of like a new age way of looking at life. And um, Art Green really uh, has spoken to a generation of spiritual seekers who maybe previously were not finding a lot of spiritual depth in Judaism. Um, what, one thing that he really did and, and continues to do in his leadership so well is um, helping us to see that there's a lot in our Jewish tradition that has a lot of wisdom to offer. People like him even, who may have sought wisdom in other faith traditions, like in Buddhism, or transcendentalist meditation, he's shown that there's actually a lot of spiritual depth right in our Jewish tradition uh, and, and, and brings those things to the fore in a, in a native Jewish language, so that people don't have to feel like they have to go travel to Tibet or to India in order to find wisdom. They can find it right in the tradition that they grew up. Um, helping us to mine uh, new ideas that we may not have learned in religious school because they're not appropriate for eight-year-olds, but they're very appropriate <laughs> for 28-year-olds. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I actually wasn't planning on going here, but in one of your blog posts, you write about how in Eastern Europe, people were forced to be Jewish in a way that they weren't in Western Europe. And that birthed Hasidism. So you, you clearly have a lot of respect for Hasidism, as you name it as one of the, the three great sort of innovations to come out of Eastern European Jewry, um, but you're obviously not Hasidic. So what what is it that you like from this tradition that you bring to being a reform rabbi, which is quite different in lifestyle? Sure, of course. Yeah. And, you know, um, I, I, I think that my own Jewish identity is one that samples from the buffet of Jewish life. You know, there's been so many different periods and styles of Jewish life throughout the many centuries that we've existed um, that I feel like I'm unable to incorporate Hasidic stories and Hasidic ideas without myself being Hasidic the same way that I can incorporate um, the teachings of the rabbis of the Talmud without having to take on their full worldview. Um, but what, what it is that I find appealing uh, about Hasidism are, are a couple of things. There's sort of a simple joy that Hasidism espouses, that a lot of Jewish life um, has been serious and cerebral and um, in, in some in some places um, about following uh, the minutia of the letter of the law. Hasidism was a movement that said like, okay, those things are good, but there's another way of being Jewish too, which is finding great joy in life, feeling a deep connection to God, feeling a real innate spirituality. Um, people often say that Tevia is a from from Fiddler on the Roof or mm -hmm. before that from the Sholem Aleichem stories is the perfect expression of what Hasidism um, is like. In that Tevia would talk to his horse the same way that he talks to God, <laughs> which is to say that Tevye had a real familiarity, a real relationship with God. And that's that's something that Hasidism espouses that I, that I think we all could add to our Jewish lives. Wonderful. And 
how is being Jewish and part of a Jewish community different where you grew up in Tallahassee? You know, I, I think you mentioned you were one of only four Jews in your school versus being Jewish in Westchester, where, you know, although we might not be an absolute majority, we are very much part of the majority culture here. Yes, where, where I grew up being Jewish really made me uh, stand out, really made me mm -hmm. unique. As you said, I'm from Tallahassee, Florida. There were not a lot of Jews there. As a result, my Jewish identity became a very core part of who I was. Um, I had to actively seek it out in order to connect with it. Um, and, and even when I didn't seek it out, it still kind of made me stand out. People knew that I was out of school for Rosh Hashanah. Uh, my mm -hmm. mom would always come in and explain Hanukkah around uh, around Hanukkah time to our public school classes. Um, of course, in Westchester, there are there's many more Jews and the Jewish community is a, a much bigger presence. I mean, the fact that the schools are closed here, not just for one day, but for two days on Rosh Hashanah yes. shows you some of the real differences. Um, but nevertheless, I, I find that um, that there, the people in, in our area are looking for, for Jewish life, even though it, it exists just by having neighbors who are Jewish, at least more so mm -hmm. than I had growing up. Um, I found that people are still looking for ways to engage with the Jewish community and that some of the uh, differences in size are, are not necessarily differences in what it is that people need and are looking for from their Jewish communities and identities. So I, I hope that we'll be able to build the kind of rich sense of Jewish identity here in Westchester that, that I was able to have uh, in, in a smaller town in Tallahassee. That's great. And, and tell us a bit more about your path to becoming a rabbi. I'm assuming you didn't do it for the money. That That's not usually why out of all the things you could do become a rabbi. It's such an interesting question. You know, um, I knew from a very young age that I wanted to be a rabbi. Hmm. There's actually a video of me at age three or four um, where my dad has like the home camcorder and, and he's filming me and he says, Daniel, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I look right into the camera and I say, I want to be a rabbi. Wow. Or a farmer was the next one. <laughs> yeah, right. And so, um, you know, I, I obviously didn't become a farmer. Um, and I, I, of course, can can like rationalize like why a three-year-old might have wanted to become a rabbi. And, and, and you know, I think it has to do with the fact that I went to a Jewish preschool and that even mm -hmm. from a young age, I felt really comfortable in Jewish settings. Um, those are sort of rational explanations. I also think there's some degree to which I can't really explain it. You know, like so, some people are are, are born and and are are gifted with artistic skills and who can explain why one person is an artist and another person isn't mm -hmm. some people are born and are gifted with athletic ability and who can explain why one person becomes an nba star and another one doesn't i feel a, a real sense of calling i feel mm -hmm. on some level that i can't quite explain and i think even three-year-old me was in tune with this like i was like i was meant to be a rabbi like i was put on earth to do this and i can't really explain that apart from the fact that I feel it really deeply and have felt it for a really long time. I feel a sense of calling to this work. I mean, interestingly, you, you didn't say the one thing that I felt was very much implied by that whole explanation, which would be that you were called by God to it. Yeah, I'm, I hesitate to, to say whether or not God did the calling. Um, mm -hmm. I, I do have a concept of God, more than a concept of God. I, I, have, I, I feel like I have a relationship with God. Um, but I'm not sure whether the calling um, is from God um, alone. You know, I, I think mm -hmm. that the sense of calling um, involves God. I think it involves, you know, my own soul, uh, which is both intertwined with and also independent of God. 
I think that my sense of calling is also wrapped up in, you know, family and community. So God, God's an element of calling, but but I don't think it's God exclusively. Interesting. Thank you. Um, what do you see as the biggest misconception about the role of rabbi and what is the most, the big majority of what you do? I think we have a lot of people have a, a general concept of what it means to be a rabbi, but not a very specific one. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, uh, often people will approach me and, and ask questions that I just have no idea what the answer is. <laughs> uh, I think that that sort of points to some of the misconceptions. Um, you know, sometimes they are questions I don't know the answer to because that's not how I practice Judaism. So, -hmm. for example, someone once asked me a question about kosher dog food. Now, I don't have a dog, (laughs) and um, I I don't keep strict kosher. I I keep kosher Mm -hmm. style. Um, and, um, and I'm, and I'm not an expert on the laws of, 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 of kosher, of kosher eating. So, um, I actually don't know anything about kosher dog food. Um, so I, I guess that points to, I think some people think that rabbis are, um, are, are all rabbis are experts in Jewish law. I would not say that mm-hmm. I'm an expert in Jewish law. Similarly, people will ask me like, what does Judaism say about the afterlife is always, is always one example. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I can tell you some things that Judaism says about the afterlife, but there's not one thing that Judaism says about right. the afterlife. There are many different ideas about the afterlife, whether you look in the biblical period or the Talmudic period or the, you know, the mystics or the Hasidim or the reform. So um, um, there's there's not like a single answer to the questions that people sometimes come to a rabbi to, to ask. A lot of these questions are in your opinion questions at the end of the day and not fact-based questions. Um, those are some of the things that I think people think rabbis uh, are and and do. A lot of what I actually do do is mm-hmm. community leadership, is getting to know people, trying to find out about their families and their interests, um, helping to pastor people through life's great joys and life's great challenges, mm-hmm. um, trying to help organize our community to do great things together, to um, to, to advocate for justice, to to learn our tradition deeply, to celebrate holidays in meaningful ways. There's a lot of community leadership and a lot less um, pouring through ancient texts and trying to find the answer to the questions about kosher dog food. That That's a great question. And I wonder if, do dogs have any moral obligations according to the Torah? That's a great question. And I truly, even today, I, I still don't know the answer about kosher dog food. So if any if any of our listeners out there do know and would like to help me know, please reach out. I'd love to hear from you. Uh, please put it in the comments and I'll, I'll convey it. So okay. great. why did Temple Beth Shalom choose you to be the successor of rabbi? And why did you choose Temple Beth Shalom and accept the invitation? I mean, I, I couldn't say why why the search committee and, and eventually the board and congregation chose me. I, I know that they they interviewed a lot of really terrific candidates. And, um, you know, I'm sure that that someone from that process could say more about what it is that they that they saw in me in particular. But I'm so glad to say what it is that I saw in this community that I so loved. You know, um, I was uh, before coming to Temple Beth Shalom serving Westchester Reform Temple which in a lot of ways is very different from Temple Beth Shalom. WRT, Westchester Reform, is a very large synagogue. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's in Scarsdale. And um, as a result of its size, it's kind of like a big box store. It has to mm-hmm. be a lot of things to a lot of different people. Um, 
And while it was a great place for me to learn, I learned a lot at WRT. I did a lot of funerals, a lot of B'nai Mitzvah, a lot of weddings, a lot of baby namings, a lot of adult education, a lot of preschool. You know, like I really um, honed my skills at WRT. Um, it, it, I, it was never exactly the kind of community that I wanted to serve. It was a great place to train, but not the place I want to be long-term. I always sort of knew innately that I wanted a place that was a little smaller, um, mm-hmm. a little more, the Yiddish word is Hamish, a little more home-like, where you can sort of get to know a lot of people and sort of wrap your arms around the community. Um, I wanted a place that had real character, a place that had a sense of who it was and yeah. uh, where where the people who you met were going to be really, really interesting. And I found all of that right here at TBS. You know, it's we're, we're a community of 400 households um, and situated in the River Towns, which is such an interesting area to begin with. Um, and when I met with the search committee and asked people, you know, there's a lot of synagogues in this area. Why do you affiliate at this congregation as opposed mm-hmm. to any of the other ones? The things that people had to say about the congregation really matched with the things that I was looking for. Again, in terms of it being a little smaller, in terms of it being a place where you know your fellow congregants, a place that has character. And one thing that people said repeatedly was how much they loved and respected Rabbi Eddie Schechter, who mm-hmm. is predecessor and my mentor at this point. Um, and uh, I was really excited to come and join a community like that and to be its its next leader. You know, and that's the, the perfect lead in for, for my next question, which is, what is it like taking over from someone who has been here for so many decades? And how do you decide what to keep from the past and, and what to change? It's been it's been terrific. You, you, you may know that Rabbi Schechter and I have a two year overlap period where he yes. is serving as senior rabbi and I'm associate rabbi. And then at the end of that two year overlap, he will retire and become rabbi emeritus and I'll be just the rabbi of the congregation. And um, it, this two year overlap, I think of as such a gift, really. Rabbi Schechter is a, a, a really remarkable leader. Um, I don't think that there is any other rabbi that I'm aware of um, who has served the same pulpit for 50 years as yeah. he has. You know, 30 years is a long tenure. 50 years is a exceptionally and unusually, maybe uniquely long tenure, which speaks to, you know, some of his real gifts. Um, I feel humbled by the by the task of um, needing to step in and fill those really big shoes. Um, you asked specifically about, um, you know, the transition and knowing what things to keep and what things to yeah. change. And, um, you know, the, the answer is that I, I want to take things really slowly. Um, I feel like this first year in particular, my most important job is just to get to know a lot of people, to learn as many names as possible, not to come in with a sledgehammer, but to come in and try and understand who is this congregation? What is it that makes this place tick? Yeah. What do people love about the place? And um, the gift of this two-year overlap is that um, I have the time to learn about the community before saying, um, here's a vision for the community, which is a part of setting a vision, is knowing where we are and where we've been before you can say where it is that we're going. So taking it slow is my answer to that question. No, that that makes sense. But I, I am going to ask you to talk about whatever you've come up with for vision so far, even though, as you've said, it's a, it's a work in progress. So what are your hopes for the future of the community? Yeah, you know, um, I think that we have a lot of opportunity here. Um, we're, this is a really um, ripe time. Um, you know, we're sort of in this new stage of the pandemic um, where more than ever we're coming back into community. Um, I found that people are really looking for a community. Um, a lot of people who who came up to the suburbs 
um, as a result of the pandemic and and also as a result of the pandemic didn't immediately join a synagogue or now joining mm-hmm. synagogues. Um, and the fact of there being a new rabbi in town, I think there's generated some some interest. So I think this is a time of great opportunity. I want to capitalize on that. Um, you know, in particular, an area that I that I see as a important focus is um, engaging with families who have kids at home. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's the future of the congregation. That's not to the exclusion of families who are empty nesters and families mm-hmm. who are retirees. But um, this is a, a community that I think is really ripe for engagement. Um, so, you know, uh, we're, we're working on building a family engagement committee, a group of parents who are going to help us uh, make sure that we have the right kinds of offerings that yeah. make sure that the synagogue is not just a place where you drop off your kids, but rather a place that you come and bring yourselves as well as a family, as a as a whole family unit. The parents have something to get out of the community, not just youngsters. Um, another thing that I'd really like to to bring here is, um, you know, there, there was a time when going to a, a big public lecture was a great appeal. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we're now living in a time where you can get any public lecture you want at the highest caliber without having to leave your house. You know, you yes. can listen to a podcast or watch a YouTube video and see the best TED talk that there is. Um, I think that the synagogue has to differentiate itself, um, not just as a place where you go and listen, but rather as a go as a place where you come and participate. So I'd like there to be more, um, you know, small group gatherings, things that happen mm-hmm. both in the synagogue and also around people's dining room tables and in people's living rooms. Um, places where we come together and discuss the most important ideas of our times, the biggest challenges of our lives in small groups, bringing to bear the wisdom of our Jewish tradition, but not always necessarily just sitting back and listening to what some expert has to say, allowing ourselves to be the experts and to bring our own uh, lived experience to to the conversation. So those are just a couple of things. Um, there's many more, but those are a couple of things that I can envision for us doing in the next couple of years. No, that, that's really interesting. And I guess one of the questions that many synagogues have is, do they simply serve the geographic region they're in, or do you actually create content for a broader audience, right? I mean, as you said, it is very possible to project, you know, through online channels, podcasts, YouTube. Um, Christian churches often do things like that, and sort of you you can create a, a virtual megachurch. Is that something that is sort of on your mind doing something broader or do you think it's best you know to have where we can touch as an in-person community as the the pure focus yeah truly much more the latter than the former Mm -hmm. i feel like you know there you're you're right that there are mega churches um who who do that and do that quite well i mean joel osteen is on television um you know and there also are synagogues who do that you know central Mm -hmm. synagogue in manhattan has a beautifully produced, really beautifully produced Friday night service that um, produced both in the sense that like the worship, the music is gorgeous, the preaching is of a high caliber, but also the audiovisual quality is of a really high caliber. Um, I I feel like sort of those large institutions Mm -hmm. will be best equipped to fill those needs. And that sort of like the local synagogue, Mm -hmm. small institutions like our own, um, will need to find our lane. You know, if we we try to um, reach a national audience, someone's going to do it better than we can. And um, rather than like trying to um, uh, do what they're doing, uh, we should do what it is that we do best. And I feel like our unique value proposition is is our community in this local area. I often think of uh, a parallel between um, 
the the world of medicine and 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 the Jewish world. You know, in the world of medicine, you have primary care and then you have specialists. And right. I think that the synagogue is very much primary care. Um, our our job is to really know and to have the long term relationship with the people in our area. And when you need something specialized, uh, we'll help you find that specialty. We'll send you to the right Jewish summer camp. We'll send you on the right <laughs> travel experience. We'll help you find the people that are doing the best justice work, the best Israel advocacy work. And we'll focus on on this community right here locally. Yeah, and and that's a a great transition. You know, to I, I want to talk now about some of the big picture questions facing you know American Judaism and and Judaism more broadly. So you know, starting off, a lot of Jews don't believe in God and and are quite open about that, but they remain connected to the Jewish community. What do you think is the connection between Judaism and atheism and and what keeps these people Jewish? Yeah, um, it's a really interesting question. I mean, one of the things that's great about Judaism is that um, it's not a dogmatic religious community. There's not one thing that if you do believe it, you are Jewish, and if you don't believe it, you're not. Um, Of course, there are tenets of Jewish belief. Um, it doesn't mean that we don't have beliefs, but it's just that those beliefs don't define us. Um, the the thing that defines Judaism is not any particular belief that should or shouldn't be held, that must or must not be held. Um, what what we are, maybe uniquely uh, among different religious groups, is that Judaism is a community first of all, and so it's it's been it's always been the case, um, even from our earliest beginnings, even in our Torah narrative. Um, that first and foremost, we're, we're a community. And, you know, we're not just any old community. We are, at the, at the, end, of, at the end of the day, a community of faith. But the first thing is, is the community part. So even from the very beginning, there's been the opportunity for people to, to have a uh, secular Jewish identity and have that be a completely authentic Jewish identity. Um, so I don't know if that answered your question or not, but that's my... That's my it, it does. I mean, I, I think there's an interesting phenomena going on in religion more broadly, and, and you see this in sort of Christian and Muslim streams where there's a polarization, and the communities that ask the most of people in terms of faith and behavior are growing. And then, you know, the communities that actually ask less in some ways are shrinking, right? I mean, you have, you know, certain kinds of growing evangelical movements and shrinking, say, Anglican movements. And and I would even say in the Muslim world, you know, I'm not as familiar with it, but the schools of thought that ask for greater adherence are growing faster than sort of institutions like, say, Al-Azhar and Cairo, where I, I studied a little bit, that are trying to have a, a middle ground between focusing on faith and, and state. So, you know, in some ways you could say some of the same dynamics are playing out with Judaism. You have certainly a growing Orthodox community. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think the reform movement in the United States remains fairly strong. Mm-hmm. And, and the conservative movement is actually shrinking somewhat because they're in this messy middle ground. But there's also some different dynamics in Judaism, as you say, mm-hmm. where it's a, a cultural or a tribal mm-hmm. community mm-hmm. Um, that that keeps people engaged even without the elements of faith in the mm-hmm. same way. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, you're absolutely right that those those are trends that sort of map across different religious groups. Um, I I think that we as a non-orthodox synagogue um, have a have an interesting dance. Um, on the one hand, we um, don't have the same rigorous norms that you might find, say, in an orthodox community in Riverdale, where um, those rigorous norms uh, make for uh, a group culture that lots of people are able to sort of like lock their teeth into. Yeah. Um, um, we we have a fairly low bar to entry, which I think is makes makes it broadly appealing. But also it could potentially become a thing where the the bar to entry is so low that people don't even know what keeps them in anymore. The the difficult dance for a reform synagogue is on the one hand appealing to a broad range of Jewish uh, people, while on mm-hmm. the other hand standing for something. And uh, I think the thing that a reform synagogue can can stand for, uh, one among many things, of course, is um, being a place where people find meaning and make meaning mm-hmm. out of their lives. Not necessarily that we have like strict rules about you have to be here on Shabbos and you have to keep kosher and you don't drive, um, but 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 being more than just like all right, you write the check and that makes you a member of the congregation. Right. It has to be a place where it stands for something that that has some values, a place where people find meaning and find purpose. Yeah, I mean, so that that's exactly where I I wanted to go next in terms of you know what defines us and maybe talking about some of the hot button issues, but in an intelligent way and not a an okay. argumentative way. So let let's talk a little bit about intermarriage, right? Yeah. You said specifically there's this challenge of how do you make sure that there is a bar that is meaningful, right? Mm-hmm. And there is a a traditional understanding of what makes somebody a Jew. In the reform movement, we have been adjusting that in relation to what we see people actually doing. And and I genuinely don't know how to think about this, right? I mean, I sort of, you know, you can say it grows our community or you can say it sort of dilutes attachment to Judaism. And as you move down the generations, you know, the children of intermarriage who intermarry themselves are simply less likely to have this be a strong part of their identity. So, you know, how do you think about this? How should we think about this as a community? And where does traditional norms play a role in that thinking versus adapting to changing circumstances? Yeah, um, you know, Different rabbis, of course, will have different feelings about this question, and um, um, I, I really respect my colleagues with with a variety of, of, of beliefs and practices on on this question. My my own experience, um, I think, I characterize in two ways. First is that when a when a couple is coming to me, um, coming to a rabbi, um, saying we want to have a Jewish wedding, mm-hmm. you know, they're they're asking for a doorway in, and yes. And and sort of for me, like regardless of whether both partners are Jewish or or only one partner is Jewish, you know, when they're asking, when someone's knocking on the door, look, I mean, like I want, I, we we need people, we need, we want people, so I I want to welcome them, I want to welcome them in, um, and and help them have a Jewish experience when they're looking for it. Um, I would also say that in my experience, um, couples where one partner is Jewish and the other partner is Jewish, in so many ways enrich the life of the Jewish people and of the congregation. I'll give a, I'll give a couple of examples. Um, 
one of our most dedicated volunteers here at TBS, someone who um, is in the is in the office like four days a week, helping us with like the bookkeeping and helping us with the accounting and um, helping to make sure that all the trains run on time and that we have all the contracts signed and that uh, we're to code on our buildings, is someone who is herself not Jewish, but who is so deeply committed to the life of the congregation. Uh, if if we um, had excluded her family from the congregation as a result of um, needing to only welcome families where both partners are Jewish, we wouldn't have that dedicated volunteer. Let me take it even even one step further. Um, there's a congregation that I was a student intern at. Um, they're not affiliated with any movement. They're an independent synagogue mm-hmm. um, where the rabbi um, is married to someone who is not only not Jewish, but is pr- actively a practicing Christian. And hmm. um, um, the the fact of of the of the rabbi having deep Jewish belief and her partner having deep Christian belief only deepened the sense of spirituality in this congregation. It's a place where people feel like they're able to draw upon the wisdom of all different kinds of traditions and bring them to bear on their way of living Jewishly. It doesn't dilute their Jewishness; it enriches their Jewishness. So um, I, I think that that our that we sort of know we know that our our tent is big and is wide. And um, bringing people under that tent who aren't themselves Jewish doesn't uh, doesn't dilute our, our ability to be Jewish. It only enriches it with with new kinds of ideas and with and with new uh, energy, which we really need. And, and I will say, uh, you know, as you noted, when people come to a rabbi to ask to be married, they're looking for a door in, and they always remember when that door is slammed in their face. That's right. That's right. Someone just wrote to me this week. Um, telling me about a bad experience they had in exactly that way decades ago. So you're right; they remember that well. And the you know, Jewish member of that partnership remembers it remembers it just as much as the the non-Jewish member. Sure. So uh, continuing our our tour of uh, troubled topics. Okay. You know, you you mentioned earlier the the topic of Israel advocacy. I did. Yeah. And I would say, you know, we are in a moment where the Jewish community and especially the more secular Jewish community is deeply divided about how to think of the the state of Israel, you know, to to oversimplify a bit. It seems like there's an older group that feels loyalty to the principles of Zionism Mm -hmm. and maybe, you know, has an attachment to the stories of of family that uh, sort of were very threatened in terms of their lives and a younger group that sees it more through the lens of social justice and human rights. Mm-hmm. So how do you as a community leader manage these divisions? And is there a way to improve the dialogue within the American Jewish community or, or more broadly about Israel? Yeah, I mean, this is one of the this is probably one of the hardest questions that the Jewish people has in front of us right now. You know, there was a time when you could get yourself excommunicated for saying you didn't believe in God. That happened to Baruch Spinoza in the Netherlands mm-hmm. in the in the 1600s. I might have the might have the century wrong there. Um, um, now you cannot believe in God and and no one cares. Uh, you can be a yes. rabbi who doesn't believe in God and no one cares. But um, you but in certain Jewish circles, if you have the wrong opinion about Israel, you effectively are Spinozad. You're effectively excommunicated. <laughs> Um, I'm going to borrow that term. I got to okay. bring it up in conversations that you've been Spinoza. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Okay. Um, yeah. So it's, it's a really difficult, um, it's a difficult issue. Um, 
I think it shows the depth of feeling on all sides of the conversation. The fact that 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 people uh, cancel one another as a result of their Israel, uh, their their beliefs on Israel, shows you the depth of feeling on on all sides of it. Um, you know, it's not just about Israel that we have that kind of discourse in our public life. There are so many issues, whether it's about reproductive rights or about gun violence prevention, uh, or even about masks. That um, when there's someone with whom we disagree. Um, we're often not able to to sit down and to listen. Um, instead, we slam the door in their faces. Israel just happens to be like the Jewish people's particular question, but it's really an American problem. It's an American problem about um, being able to to, to have uh, constructive disagreements. Um, you know, for me, I think part of the part of the the remedy is is listening. You know, we spend a lot of time. I, you're right. I used the phrase Israel advocacy earlier, but but um, I'm, I'm not even sure that that's the most important thing right now. Um, I think I think learning to listen, learning to try and take other people with whom we disagree seriously, trying to understand the merits to their argument, trying to understand the life experiences, um, the stories, the 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 feelings that lead them to feel any particular way about Israel, will only humanize them for us. And allow us to stay in community with one another, even when we disagree about, you know, what the next step should be. So, um, you know, the, the drawing red lines about which opinions are in and which opinions are out at the end of the day is only going to bloody our community. Uh, and I think what we really need to do is 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 heal our community uh, over divides like this. So more listening, more empathy, more trying to understand, less shouting, less arguing, less fighting. So let, let me just push one level deeper on this, sure. and yeah. specifically in your role as a rabbi. So, yeah. you know, you clearly have opinions. I'm I'm not actually going to bother to ask what they necessarily are, but more, you know, what is your role in this community? Do you keep your opinions to yourself and serve as sort of a, a neutral arbiter, knowing there's, you know, a variety of approaches, or do you say, you know, I believe this is an issue of, you know, existential threat or social justice or whatever, and advocate for your beliefs and try and bring people along, right? I mean, sometimes a leader leads from behind and sometimes a leader leads from in front. And how do you think about this in terms of what is a very important issue to many people in your community? Yeah. You know, I think that um, um, if if a leader who doesn't uh, stand up for what they believe in um, probably isn't doing their job fully. Um, I think that there's a balance, though, between saying, like, let me tell you what it is that I believe and where it is that I think uh, where like where I eventually at the end of the day put my chips uh, in 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 any particular debate, um, but not excluding other people from having their opinions, too. You know, when I was at Westchester Reform Temple uh, uh, prior to, to coming here, there was one High Holy Days where I gave a sermon um, about about racial justice. And, um, you know, I both wanted to show people this is an issue that I care about. This is something that I believe in. I want to tell you how I feel about it. Um, I'm even going to try and make persuasive arguments, you know, showing mm -hmm. you why I feel the way I, that I do feel about it. And... I want you to to know and feel and understand that you can feel differently, that you don't have to be on the same page as me about this. 
that, um, and if you do feel differently, I actually would love to hear and to learn from you. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, I, I both want to sort of lay my vision out there, but also not have my vision for, of, of the world be one that causes people to say like, well, I can't have the rabbi do my mother's funeral when the time comes because yeah. because he doesn't respect me, because he doesn't get me. In fact, I, I feel like I have a, a, an even bigger obligation to get and to understand people with whom I disagree and actually found, got a lot of joy at WRT in meeting with congregants who disagreed with me and learning from them and, and having them send mm -hmm. me articles uh, to help broaden my way of thinking about things so that when there's a pastoral need like that, they know that I care about them and that their opinions aren't out of bounds to me. So that's that's how I that's how I think about it. I hope that answers the question. That that does. Yeah. You know, I, I think we're you know coming to to a close here, but I've got a, a couple more. Just okay, you know, great. how do you think Judaism in America will change over the next thirty years? And sort of as a corollary. To what degree do you believe demography is destiny, which is what my father always told me, versus what are the things that we're in the process of actively shaping? Well, what did your father mean when he said demography is destiny? Oh, you know, birth rates really show you who's going to accumulate power uh, in the future, and that will determine, you know, the, the social and, and political direction of of various communities. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. You don't have to hold that position at all. I'm just sort of telling you one of the framings and, and we see sort of the birth rates. I mean, Orthodox people have more babies than reform people, right. at least as yeah. an average. Um, so that could be an influence to what's going to happen in Judaism, you know, in the US and globally, or yeah, you know, there's other frameworks. And I, I just love to hear where do you think this is all going? Sure. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I don't know uh, what to say about the demographic data. Um, and, and I'm also not, I, I, it's like, it's for me, it's not a primary concern. You know, there, there mm -hmm. are a lot of Jewish leaders for whom it is. And, um, but like Jewish, Jewish continuity um, matters. But um, what matters to me more is like is Jewish is like a richness of Jewish life. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, if all that we're focused on is making more Jewish babies, um, then we've sort of missed uh, the opportunity to make more of our Jewish our Jewish present. Mm -hmm. um, when, I, when I think about the Jewish future, I, I often think about this really good story in, that's in the Talmud where um, there's. Um, it imagines this scene in the, in the Talmud. It imagines this scene where Moses is somehow allowed to look into the future. Moses looks into the future and he sees a Judaism that's completely unrecognizable to him. Moses only ever knew the Judaism of the Torah, the Judaism mm -hmm. that has animal sacrifice and that has a you know a temple in Jerusalem and a, uh, all the system of priests and a priestly helpers. Um, and and in, in, in the scene in the Talmud, Moses looks down into the future and he sees a completely different Judaism, a Judaism of study, a Judaism of prayer, a, Ju a Judaism of righteous deeds. And he's completely confused. He doesn't know what to make of it. He feels like he would be the least most student in that world of future Judaism. Mm -hmm. And in his dream, he's reassured God uh, shows him that that even though it's a completely unrecognizable Judaism, it still is an extension of him. It still is uh, an expression of 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 the world that he set in motion through his leadership. 
And I kind of feel that way about American Judaism. I think that we're in a moment of really big change right now. And I, I don't think that um, my grandkids, God willing, will practice exactly the same kind of Judaism that my grandparents practiced. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I'm actually, and I'm okay with that. I'm, I'm worried about it for sure. Because um, I think that there were a lot of things that served my grandparents really well. After all, their Jewish lives produced produced my Jewish life. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 I know still that my grandkids will practice differently than all of that. And I have enough trust that if we do the right job with our kids, then they'll do the right job with theirs. And it might look different, but I but but um, but I think it'll be beautiful, and I think that it'll be strong. So I think that there's a lot of uh, opportunity even within the unknown. I love that vision. Are there any final thoughts that you'd like to leave our listeners with? Hmm, it's a great question. I mean, I would say that, you know, like we said at the beginning of this conversation, um, for me, what what my role is and what Temple Beth Shalom is really all about is about community and is about people and is about um, having thick relationships and relationships that are filled with meaning. And so if there's listeners out there who I haven't had the chance to encounter yet, and if you'd like to have a chance to sit down, nothing would please me more. I'd so love anyone who's out there listening to um, reach out and to find a time to get together. We could meet up for coffee or for lunch or uh, whenever is the right time to get to know each other. And only when we have relationships um, can we eventually have relationships that matter. So let's, let's get to know each other. Let's start by having a relationship. That's what I'd say. Well, Rabbi Daniel, thanks so much for being on the show. My pleasure, Timothy. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you to Rabbi Daniel for joining us on the Rivertown StoryCorps podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Timothy Reuter. If you like this content, please make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform to ensure you don't miss an episode and leave a review to help other people find it. If you have any feedback or guest suggestions, please feel free to email us at rivertownstories, all one word, at gmail.com. We look forward to having you join us for the next conversation.